Hashtag yeah. justice you're getting, for Apple. You're going to get cancelled off the back of this. <laughs> the dream is finally <laughs> happening. Welcome to the Glasshouse Game Show, recorded in London at Glasshouse Brick Lane. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and today I'm joined by Shay, hi, Sam, hello, and two special guests: uh, Yuki CEO Dr. Joe Twist, hello, and Insight and Innovation Manager Luke Hebblethwaite. Hello, am I saying that right? You are excellent. Yeah. Uh, so today we're going to talk about the UK Games Industry Census. Is that the official title? <clears throat> it is awesome. And um, we only have Joe for a limited amount of time, so we're going to kind of dive straight in instead of our normal chit chat. I'm afraid. We had that before we started recording, uh, so I'm afraid you missed it. Uh, so we're going to try and get as much info as we can out of these two, uh, especially while Joe's here, and then maybe talk some more uh, afterwards if we have time. So these results were released on February 4th, which is one day before we're recording, but uh, almost a week before you'll see this. Uh, and it was a collaboration between the University of Sheffield, so Dr. Mark Taylor yep. over there, uh, the University of Leeds, and Yuki. Uh, and you were responsible, Luke, for the a lot of the data work. Is that right? Uh, not quite, no. So um, uh, Yuki's role was to support the, the mm -hmm. process and make sure it you know, met with what the industry wanted. But uh, all the sort of data work, the handling of the data, the analysis was all done by the University of Sheffield. So the was, science stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was very important that it was independent from us because uh, it's all sensitive information about people I probably know, you know, and, and so on. So it was important that I wasn't sat there with the spreadsheet filtering through it going, oh, yeah, that's this and that. So it's all completely ah. done independently and very securely. Okay. Um, so Yuki was kind of a go-between to help the academics access the games industry. Yeah. And obviously okay. we help with like the design and structuring it and the report and, and so on. But yeah. Okay. Uh, and then there was support from the Arts and Humanities Research Council as well. Yeah. Uh, so this is the first time this kind of thing has been done, right? So why now, Joe? Well, I think we have been relying on figures both from the UK and from an international uh, perspective, uh, figures like the IGDA survey, which are actually quite old. Mm. Um, I mean, IGDA have just released their new survey. But as far as the UK games industry goes, you know, it's really when Creative Skills Set was called that, they did a census. But the sample size was so low that you couldn't cut the data down. So, for example, if you were looking at BAME or... Uh, gender in terms of job roles, you couldn't do that because mm. the sample was too low. So we've been relying on those figures and in lieu of having anything else. And I met uh, Mark, uh, Dr. Mark, at uh, a BAFTA event where he was talking about the approach that he, he and his department take. Um, they do this for all sorts of other creative industries and industries. And they take an intersectional approach to diversity, which I've always personally been really obsessed with. Because diversity and inclusion is not two-dimensional or one-dimensional. It's multi-dimensional. A lot of it goes down to social mobility, uh, to privilege, to your social background. Not all women are the same. Not all, you know, not all people are the same. So I was really interested in, in this and impressed with what he'd done. And he really wanted to do this for the games industry. So that's how the collaboration sort of happened. And it's so important. We had 20% of the games industry workforce in the UK fill out the census, which is phenomenal. So that's over 3,200, 3,208 people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to those extra eight. Um, so 
I want to talk about how you got these workers. So I guess this is kind of what you were working on, Luke, because some of these were self-selecting. It was just people opting to fill out the census themselves. Some of them were more targeted, right? And I want to know how you managed to avoid the bias of self-selection. Yeah, exactly. So one of the risks is if you just go, here's a a census and an open link in social media and so on, the people that respond to that are uh, the people that like answering questions about diversity, right? So you're going to get people who want to be recognized in that. So you're going to get a bias in the data. Um, Also, you know, are you reaching a representative group of people? So, you know, in our Twitter account, are all the people that follow our Twitter, for example, representative of the games industry as a whole? Probably not. Mm. So we need to take another approach as well to complement that data to uh, make sure we're getting a representative sample of people. So what we did is we worked with games companies across the country uh, of all scales. So basically using some of the economic data that we've got from our other work at Yugi. Um, I basically worked out a sort of, you know, we need X number of big publishers, X number of big developers, some medium-sized companies, some companies in the Northeast, Northwest, you know, kind of a, a good cut of, of, of companies of different sizes. And then we reached out to each of those companies and said, okay, we need you specifically to push this out to all of your staff. Mm. And so we assigned each one of those uh, companies kind of a unique link to the census uh, that they could push to their stuff so we could measure response rates. From okay, those. I'm interested in the regional uh, yeah. reach then. Did you manage to get people from all over the country or was there quite a London focus? I mean, there is a bit of a London skew, but mm. I mean, there is in the games industry generally, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there's quite a like, you know, big concentration of games companies in London and Southeast, but um, uh, that's, you know, far less so than a lot of the other creative industries. You know, we released a report uh, a week previously to this census that looked at the regional spread of the games industry around the country. And, you know, it, it's clear that, you know, we are quite, you know, diverse in terms of our local location for companies, that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, the respondents for the census were largely, um, uh, you know, in line with those findings, right? So we did get a slight London skew. We got slightly less people from Wales and less people from Northern Ireland, perhaps. Mm. But we did a lot of work in the weighting of that data to check whether, uh, you know, if we sort of rebalance that slightly, uh, did it make any material difference to the findings? And the answer is no, not really. Um, so we didn't end up skewing it in any way. And also when you do some of that weighting, you've got to bear in mind that if you get a small number of people from an area, say Wales, mm-hmm. um, are those people representative of Wales as a whole? We don't know. So you, you risk that as well. So, but yeah, we got a really good, um, cross section of people from across the industry. Okay. Do either of you have any questions at this point? No. Nope. No. Okay. So there was there was a big input from Scotland though, is what you're saying. There was, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Scotland's big in the UK games industry as the regional. They uh, are. I like to tell people this yeah. all the time. Yeah. 131 million pounds in GVA to the UK economy. Oof. I think that is a good stat to have off the top <clears throat> of your head. You got to remember that, Sam. <laughs> oh no, it's tattooed. On the <laughs> Bring it out on dates. Yeah. Um, so, Shay, you had a look at this survey, right, when it came out. What did it look like? Do you remember? Um, so you touched on this very briefly, Joe, in that it was quite intersectional. I don't know mm. what I was expecting, but I don't think I was expecting it to kind of get into, like, all of the intersectional bits. Mm. And I do appreciate that, like, you can't get into too many intersectional bits because then it becomes, like, disclusive, mm. um, which is something we obviously want to avoid. Um, I think, for me, the most interesting fact was seeing that of the BAME representation, obviously, it's, like quite low but um it was a lot of people who aren't from the uk um Mm. and i guess my concern is that you know why don't people like being people living in the uk feel comfortable Mm. enough to sort of approach this industry and then that compounded by the fact that you know this is quite a middle class industry um and like a lot of people are university educated i think are a lot of 
there's a lot of steps to put in place that put people off. I know that for me, I'm in this industry by chance. And I'm not saying that to put myself down. I mean that in the sense of, I didn't go to uni. I'm from a very working class background. I happen to be in like the right place at the right time. And that's why I'm here. And I think if we can put more steps in place to kind mm. of, you know, and, and I think that's exactly the point of doing this because mm. it shows us what we need to do. Mm. <laughs> and for me, the standout is around social mobility. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it sometimes is in the way that these kinds of things are measured. And it's important that we are consistent with measurement and the questions mm. we're asking so mm. that we can compare it to nationwide data sets of working age population or general population or in different sectors. But for me, um, my results actually didn't count because I mm. wasn't working in a well a trade body. So for some reason, Luke said we're not allowed to do it. <laughs> no, we, well, we, we were anyway. Well, anyway, um, but my mother was a single mum, and she was a school teacher, mm. and we couldn't afford a computer, but she's still in that middle class sort of posh end mm. because she's a professional. And I think you know that there, there's some contextualization about how do we you know, understand what are some of the reasons. So we know that we're a really highly skilled industry. Mm -hmm. If you're in game development, many people do do a degree in mm -hmm. computer science or maths or in humanities, arts, and so on. So we do know that we're, we're, we, we are a highly skilled industry, but that shouldn't mean... So what, what do we have to do? What can we draw out of that in terms of how we do take those extra steps to make sure that we're being visible as an industry mm -hmm. to everyone? Yeah. And particularly people who might not now, particularly mm. nowadays, be able to even consider university because of how much it costs. Yeah. Mm. So I think that's what this tells us a little bit more about. And, and, and one of the other worrying um, stats was around people, uh, particularly BAME, in positions of seniority. Mm. And so how do we put in measures or programs and what do companies need to do in, or, in order to make sure that that's changing? Mm, yeah. And again, that's why we want to repeat the census in a couple of years' time to see whether any measures um, that we have put in place as an industry have made any difference. Sure. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, what the plans for the future are uh, after we discuss some of the findings. Um, I guess uh, we'll we'll go on. We'll start with BAME then. Mm. Uh, um, we'll go back to the stuff that was before that. Um, so. Why do you think BAME people are underrepresented in the games industry versus the general working population? Um, I think it's a whole host of things. I think one of the main things is the kinds of games that are made. And I think mm. then that becomes like a chicken and egg situation. Mm. You know, we don't see ourselves in the game. So it's like, well, why would we want to work at those companies? But actually the thought process, it should be, we don't see ourselves in these games. Let's make games that you know, include us in there. But I think that is a really big part of it. And I think even before you get to that, I think there's something to be said about the types of stories we tell in games. If game companies feel like take, uh, telling stories about people of color is risky, that in and of itself is an issue, mm. never mind before even having like people of color working at the companies. Mm. Um, so I think just, just diversifying our content will like really help with that to begin with. Mm. Um, and yeah, for the reasons, like I said, like I know that for me working in games wasn't even and like it wasn't even a thought when I was a kid like exactly. just not even and I know that's not the case for I know that's the case for a lot of people mm. just growing up in your economic background or wherever you are in the UK like it might just be a complete pipe dream but mm. I think especially I guess and anecdotally um you know there's very much an immigrant mindset of well you need to be a doctor or an engineer yeah. or a lawyer yeah. like mm. any sort of creative jobs is like pretty much 
yeah. written or written. And we know that from other creative industries, say yeah. exactly the same thing, mm. still now. Um, you go into schools and nine times out of ten you'll get five kids coming up to you if you've done a talk about the games industry mm. and go, I didn't realize this could be a mm. job. Yeah. And the parents, um, even when it comes to the film industry, much more established kind of yeah. creative industries, if you say, I want to be in, I want to go into the film industry, you know, lots of parents will be nervous about that because mm. they don't know the range of job roles. Yeah. And they think, oh, you're going to be a, a, on screen or, you know, you're never going to make it. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. But, also, but also those, sorry, those yeah. jobs, you know, we've all f often heard this, the accountants and lawyers, sorry, out mm. there, but <laughs> those are the ones more likely to not be resilient to automation mm. and the fourth industrial revolution and artificial intelligence the more creative ones are, are are perhaps the ones that we should be focusing on and parents should be pushing their kids into. Yeah. And also something that came up at Interactive Futures actually is that we need accountants and lawyers in the games industry. Mm. Absolutely, so. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just further to what Joe was saying there, I think, you know, if you're looking at... Um, also, you know, like you say, you get kids that come up to you after these events and go, oh, I didn't know this was a suitable role for me or a potential job for me. Also, you know, the people don't really realize that there are games companies all around the country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people tend to think they must be made either in America mm -hmm. or they're made in London. And if you're or Japan, in, yeah, or yeah. Japan, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you're living in Newcastle, yeah, it might, you might not think that there's this, you know, Ubisoft have an enormous, you know, set of studios in, in, in the nearby area. So, you know, and it's about people not really realizing that that's there. So if you come from slightly poor areas of the country or whatever, it, that awareness isn't something that has been there until I think much more recently, mm. I think. And yeah. So. Mm. Is there anything else you wanted to say about this? Um, no. No? Okay. Well, I mean, feel free to bring it up later if it comes sure, up. Sure, sure. Um, but it's interesting what you said there about immigrant uh, parents, especially, mm. because uh, there was interesting stats about nationality of people mm. who responded to this survey. Can you remember any of them off the top of your head, Luke? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we have a, a massively international workforce mm. in games. I think it's 28% of workers in games are for, uh, hold non-UK passports. Mm -hmm. And I think it's 19% are from Europe. That's uh, perfect. And 9% from the rest of the world. Thank you. This is, this is a bit of a test. So I like, <laughs> it's, it's like job interview territory. But um, yeah, so and what that really tells you is that's, and we do a lot of this in, in the report, is to compare that against other data where we can. So we go, well, is that a lot or is that normal? Mm. And the answer is no, that's a lot. Especially looking at, then we go into some detail about what sort of roles those workers do, um, what sort of seniority they are. And so, for instance, those European workers, we have a, an enormous proportion of, of people from Europe working in games, but they also tend to uh, skew slightly more towards junior and mid-level roles. Mm. So, you know, this isn't people who are being brought over on massive salaries who are sort of, you know, figureheads, this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's people who are doing a lot of the day-to-day -day work of making games, you know, the sort of, you know, we have large teams and they make up a, a big chunk of that. So they're sort of essential to our workforce. Mm. Why is that? Why is that so popular? I mean, I think localization is is one of the, the key kind of roles that you see there's a quite an international workforce for obvious reasons but but also because we know we've got a skill shortage in this country mm. we don't have enough people with the skill sets uh, to be able to actually program um, is a well-known fact. We know that that, that that the economy and other sectors talk about STEM, whereas we need artists as well as technical people. We need technical artists as well. So we need this whole kind of polymaths uh, kind of skill set. And we know that Europe uh, has been traditionally sort of slightly better at uh, computer science in the education system. Um, and so it, it, it's a whole mix of, of, of reasons, but we've, we've got a skill shortage in this country. We want, we yeah. need more people. 
um, in, in, in the games industry. So the obvious follow-up question, and sorry to be talking about it again, but our departure from the European Union, is that going to affect our workforce? Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is the, the ammunition that we need because we did a state of play report and it came out sort of fairly similar in terms of when you compare it to the uh, UK working age population, it's only 17% international workforce uh, compared to, or non-UK non, uh, passport holders compared to 28% in the games industry. So if you're going to put in a, a false barrier to making that immigration uh, process, if you're going to put in a barrier to that, especially for smaller companies, because we know our industry is made up of SMEs, yeah. it's going to, to, to really be damaging to our industry. Okay. So it gives us ammo. <laughs> and they're listening. Any any questions on nationality? Not on nationality, but I guess on the topic of, and this is a slight tangent, on like seniority mm. in companies. Like, because yeah. a lot of, like a common thread throughout the report is that, you know, we don't have enough like women in senior roles or like people of color. I sort of, do, do we need that? I mm. guess I sort of push up against like the need for gull bosses <laughs> and stuff. Because I think we sort of, without really saying it, there's almost like a devaluing of like mid to junior roles then. It's a similar thing of, you know, when we talk about games industry roles and I don't know if we're going to mention this mm. later on. So we only really think of dev and then mm. like, we, like, you know, we need to get more women into STEM, but then kind of dismiss um, like marketing roles. Is it mm. a case of us like dismissing like mid to junior roles by sort of putting, placing this emphasis on having more managerial roles? I think it's a mix. I mm -hmm. mean, I think that you want to see a broader spread of uh, representation in roles. But I mean, that's not to say that all roles should be sure. this kind of person or not. We need mm -hmm. a good mix of people across everything. I think one thing that's quite clear in this report is if you look at the representations of people in different kinds of job roles, um, certainly from people, people of color are more represented in what you might think of as sort of business operations roles. So HR, sure. finance, mm -hmm. uh, legal things, that, that kind of stuff, where there's not so much, um, like you say, there's that kind of immigrant uh, mindset of, you know, you need a, a, a sensible job, sure. you know, and those people have, have pursued that path, but also come into the games industry through those routes. And we see um, a sort of more even uh, mix of people in those roles, whereas the more specific games industry roles, there's less diversity in, in some of them. Mm -hmm. But also, I think it, it, it sort of relates to the other thing that we also launched with the census, which was the in industry pledge, mm -hmm. because it, it is <clears throat> asking companies to take action and one of those actions is that if you, you know, in order to, it, it has to come from the leadership, mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of these decisions or a lot of the ways that companies change their workplace cultures, the measures that they take, the reasonable adjustments that they might make for people with physical uh, different ability issues. So a lot of that does have to come from the leadership and a lot of that has to come from the confidence of walking the walk as well as talking the talk. So there is that aspect as well. And I think, you know, that that is important. And, you know, the decisions around the kinds of stories, you know, which is also in the pledge, making sure that we're reflecting the people who play our games globally, you know, to your point earlier about I want to play characters who I can resonate with or I want different kinds of stories, different kinds of games. So sometimes that decision has to come or is made or not mm. because you've got someone senior in the in, in the senior leadership team sort of saying yes or no. Yeah, do you know mm. how bored I am of playing muscular, shaven-headed white men? <laughs> just like there's an option ever in a game. I'm just like, I just not that person, you know. It's like yeah. Literally anything else. Anything else at this point, you know. <laughs> I've got a follow-up thought as well. I wanted to talk about uh, two things. So the age thing was a big one that came out mm. in the key findings. And then also um, the, the childcare stats. Mm. 
And together, they kind of paint a picture of high turnover <clears throat> in the games industry. And this is a thing that has kind of been an, uh, like a widely known thing about the games industry is that people often, especially people from marginalized backgrounds, leave the industry but earlier than you might leave another industry. And the childcare stats maybe suggest that women who are able to have children aren't doing so until later or are leaving the games industry in order to do so because the industry doesn't seem to support that. And maybe that's related to why we think it's an issue that there aren't people from marginalized backgrounds in senior positions mm. is because we think the cause of that is that they're being pushed out of the industry before they can get there rather than that they don't want those positions. Sure. Um, I or, don't know if you feel like that rings true yeah, or, not. Or, or Or that workplace policies don't support mm. shared parental leave properly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, no matter who you are. It doesn't have to be the person physically pushing something out to, uh, <laughs> to take on that childcare responsibility. Yeah, right? I mean, I think uh, it's for men and women, the childcare responsibility percentages are lower than they are in the general population. Yeah, and, and, and again, we're, sorry, but yeah. we're a young industry, we're 40 mm. something years old, and I think that's part of it. You know, we, 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 we know that the people who started this industry a lot of them are st still alive. And, uh, <laughs> Touch wood. <laughs> this is for Micah. Um, <clears throat> no, they're still alive, which is a great thing. Um, but we are a young industry. And and I think, you know, we're, we've grown, you know, since, like, I guess, uh, smartphones, app store ecosystem, the diversity of games that we do have access to is growing all the time. Mm. Um, and I think that is appealing. So it, it, it's kind of, but I, I'm more interested as well in, in how do we create returnships? How do we look at what other sectors are doing really well to bring in and to encourage people who are coming back from perhaps having a break for any kind of caring responsibility, but they might not have even been in the games industry, but they might have been in, in a marketing role somewhere else in another sector that have so much to bring to the games industry because they've got all this experience. So there's a multiple, there's multiple things. Again, this kind of gives us so many ideas and this is what we really want the industry to be talking about. Okay, well, what kinds of measures, what kind of programs, what kind of things do we need to do to support people to ensure that we've got retention so that people aren't leaving and that we're bringing in more people and that we're actually bringing people back mm. when they perhaps have a break no matter what gender they are. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, we kind of call this out in the report, um, you know, like looking at those other se other sectors, you know, we are not unique in in a lot of these problems. Mm. You know, this in STEM, we refer it to it in the report, there's, a, there's an academic paper on this about what's called the leaky pipeline, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's about how uh, people, uh, women and, and other people mar marginalised, uh, you know, drop out of industries at a certain age and, and how that, you know, that it's not just related to childcare. There can be loads of other reasons, you know, barriers that come up through, you know, promotions, that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, there are lessons to be learned from other sectors in doing this. So, you know, they're not all problems we have to solve ourselves. There mm -hmm. are other solutions out there. And we should be open to looking and engaging with other sectors, other creative industries and other non-creative industries to, 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 to resolve those. Mm. Okay. Any follow-up thoughts on age and... Nothing. Okay. No, That's just cool. just just can't wait to be in the grave. So excited. <laughs> uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about gender then, because this is obviously quite a big one that a lot of the articles have focused on. Um, so the stats uh, suggest that the games industry is seventy percent male, twenty eight percent female, two percent non binary, and other. Um, back in 2017, even as recent as that, we've had stats that suggested that 14% mm -hmm. of people in the UK games industry were women. Mm -hmm. This is obviously double that. Is that a difference in changing times or a different methodological approach, do we think? I would say the latter, mm -hmm. probably. I mean, so we 
one of the things is really important. We, no one else has attempted to do this kind of research at this level of detail with mm -hmm. this kind of sample size. So making those comparisons to old stats that are around are a bit risky uh, because with those stats might not be representative of the industry at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can be sure that these are as 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 best as we can do at the moment. Uh, obviously, you know, when we come to doing this in two years' time, I don't want. To, 3,200 people filling it in, I want 10,000, you know, and all the rest of it. Um, but making those comparisons is a, is a bit risky. So mm, okay. um, we don't have, you know, I'm not going to say we have a reliable, this is a 20% improvement since that time. There has obviously been, you know, we can have anecdotal understanding that there is some change, but I think... I don't know. I mean, I look at the multiple different, um, again, looking at the previous, uh, one of the years, um, IGDA, uh, you know, which is quite a big sample size, albeit fairly North American focus, mm -hmm. but it is kind of global. It also said, and there was another UK one that said 19% women mm. um, about four or five years ago. So, and I think anecdotally, you know, I, I, I'm meeting more and more women. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm seeing more and more women at events. Maybe, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not the scientist, you know, but I, I think, I think we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much at the moment. I think, the time to beat ourselves up is in two years' time if we see there's an increase or not. Yeah, and yet still obviously significantly below the overall UK workforce. Uh, in case there is anyone listening who hasn't been following the, you know, all of the stories around women in games, kind of a summary for why there are relatively few women in the games industry. What do you, if, if someone from outside of the industry says, so why, why the woman problem, huh? What do you say to them? I mean, I always go back to education. And again, mm -hmm. what we were talking about earlier about actually, this is a job for you. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a, this is a really, really fulfilling career uh, when you get to the right company and you're in a supportive work environment and whatever you're into, um, there is probably a job for you. So, and we do know, again, you know, we, we lobbied hard as part of the Next Gen Skills campaign that we led uh, about five years ago now to get computer science back on the curriculum. Our digital schoolhouse program is really fantastic um, in really trying to appeal to girls and all sorts of people um, to teach computer science in a really creative way, in a really you know hands-off technology sometimes way, um, in, and in a way that is appealing to everyone. So I think there's a, again, there's a blend of, of reasons. I think there's a lot of stereotypes still floating around about games. You know, I cannot stand it <laughs> when someone uh, says, oh, you play mobile games. You're a casual gamer then. Yeah. Number one, I'm not a gamer. I'm someone who plays games. Number two, mobile games are not, I hate that word casual. And we're Scottish. We know that that means something else, actually. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. I'm, no, I'm not going to say it. But, you know, to, to me, there are still many, uh, lots of stereotypes. Mm. And we need to break those apart we know there's problems in education when you get to if you do go to the degree route in terms of uh just the people and who they are teaching you mm, and again yes. that speaks to everything that we're doing you know and everything we're talking about in the census it's like it's putting people who you can relate to and you go okay i'm not the only one in the room
this is the other issue that's not necessarily to do with education or anything, but just being in the industry. The, the communities around video games can be quite hostile, and especially mm. to women. And the fact that if you exist online, there's just so much hate. Mm. And it's not just for people that are public facing either. I think like, and even just people lurking in big, huge teams at Ubisoft or wherever, like part of the dev team get hunted out when there's, you know, people, fans aren't happy with certain games and stuff. And you've mm. seen that time and again. And I think, I know before I got into games and I've been in for four years now, I know it was like seeing, you know, during Gamergate and seeing the way women were treated during that certainly made me hesitant when I started to come up in the games industry and for the four years I've been here, the way that I've treated has made me hesitant about particularly, we were actually on a panel like a couple of years ago talking about it and I had, I've made it part of that conversation actually being like, I don't want to put anyone off, but I think it, it really has passed to be part of the conversation that if you're mm. women or any marginalized person in games, hostility that you're going to be met with as part of the job and the sad thing of it, there's not really any compensation for that. That's just something you have to deal with. And I think that's a big part of, yeah, people seeing that and not feeling welcome in the games industry, um, but also, yeah, not staying as well and being pushed out eventually. Yeah. And like, you know, it doesn't even matter if it's not like a large proportion of the audience right like you know most people who play video games are fine people it's a small percentage who will target women yeah. online or target people of color online but white men don't have to deal with that yeah. at least nowhere near to the same extent so that's like you you're just making a comparison with like uh, your colleagues if your colleagues aren't dealing with this shit and you have to for no reason other than where you come from that's i guess a reason to consider not working in that yeah. industry but i think it's something that we need to work on because um you know the internet does amplify everything mm. and and i do know actually i know quite a few white men who get a lot of death threats and a lot of but it's different you know there's just different levels of it yeah. but i think you know one of the things that um i think is important is how do we how do we help train or offer training or offer again, support on how to deal with your identity online, mm. how to deal with that, how to build resilience, how to protect yourself, what responsibilities, because companies do still have responsibility for their employees online, like when they're online yeah. in a professional capacity. So I think we've got quite a long way to go to understand that and what are the measures. You know, we worked on, uh, with my BAFTA hat on, the <laughs> anti-bullying and, and harassment guidelines. And we have sort of redrafted them to make them more relevant to games businesses. And the point that I keep raising is, right, we have a lot of our work is on Twitter in the public sphere. It is in digital communities. It's online. And that's quite different to the film industry and the TV industry. So how do we deal that with that? How do we make sure that businesses know how to help support and protect their employees? kind yeah. of more similar to like journalism really in some ways so it's oh, yeah. kind of there's yeah, links public, there i think yeah. yeah in that kind of way yeah yeah okay so i i know we've only got joe for about another 15 minutes uh so we're gonna move on in a sec to talk about what we what we do in the future you've kind of already mentioned a few of those but just quickly uh want to mention uh sexuality uh and also under gender uh trans representation so uh stonewall estimates that the uk is one percent trans uh but the games industry is three percent trans is the uk games industry particularly welcoming to trans people or do you think trans people are more likely to gravitate towards working in games for some other reason if anyone feels comfortable saying anything about that i mean i think i mean obviously assu you know assuming the best and that you know we have you know assuming that obviously this data is not necessarily definitive in terms of 
like you mentioned earlier, the people most likely to fill this out are the people that are most marginalized. So that may be a factor in that. But I guess part of it, I mean, I get. I wonder. I mean, if you know, this is proper like galaxy brain stuff. <laughs> but like, I wonder if part of it is with digital stuff, with games, you don't have to exist in a physical space. And I think with games, there's a lot of remote work. And I think also like in game dev, there's a lot of indie development and stuff. And it means there are ways for you to exist and be comfortable in your identity that don't necessarily put on the same pressures of having to go to a workplace or having to be face the public on a regular basis. And I think those things are a big factor, I think, I would suspect, in terms of people feeling comfortable, you know, being transgender and existing in games. Do you think that's also the case for why the UK games industry is so much more queer than the national average? <laughs> so we've got, uh, so apparently estimates of the adult population of the UK suggest that 93 to 97% are straight, which I'm afraid does not feel true to me, but maybe that's just the bias of the people I hang out with. Um, but in the games industry, only 79% straight, uh, 5% lesbian or gay, 11% bisexual, 1% asexual, 1% pansexual, 2% queer, uh, 0.5% other. I like that pansexual was added as a category after lots of people who wrote other yeah, added that's right. pansexual. Yeah, so in the, in, we had a kind of, you know, it, a number of options and then there was another, so put whatever you want in there. And we had so many people respond mm. that they were pansexual that it actually made a statistical difference, so we called it out. Excellent. But yeah, and I think, you know, in each of the, you know, we can look at, I think it's 21% of people are LGD, LGT. <laughs> I can never get that right. LGBTQ, uh, LGBTQIA. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's been a long, it's been a long week. Um, but yeah, so it's a high percentage. But if you if you break that down, uh, each of those sort of categories of, of people, you know, that it's not, you know, it's uh, there's more gay men in games than in the national population. There are mm. more bisexual women in games than in the national pop population. It's it's across the board in all of that. So why do we think that is? Um, I would suspect it's because I'm here and my gay energy is attracting all these people <laughs> into the industry. Um, I'm really, I really, I really honestly have no clue because my time as a career woman in games for four years has, I don't, I don't think if I've, I've other, you know, other than external, like, like harassing online and stuff, I don't think I've met any hostility within the games industry no. generally. Mm. But um, but certainly, but there is that thing, and I've I've got friends that work in tech, and they have a similar thing of it's not hostility, but there is that weird thing of like you tend to be like the only queer person in your workplace a lot of the time, mm. and it's or so you think, or so yeah, yeah. As, as far as you know, yeah. and um, and that create like like a, a small tension of just like you're not sure how comfortable you are, mm. and people, and I've certainly found like straight or cis people tend to be a little like tense about talking about those topics. Mm. Um, it's, but, sorry. Well, I was just gonna. Um, uh, so my doctorate was about identity uh, in in online communities mm. in the late 90s when we, when we have, you know, we didn't have the same sort of social media communities. And I think the thing, because I was obsessed with, with games and social virtual worlds where you are performing different aspects of yourself. Mm. And we, you know, games are... A lot of them are role playing. You're you're creating your avatar. You're you're trying on a different identity, and that's a really healthy thing for people to do. Mm. Generally, the internet mm. has made that more possible. I so I wonder if, if there's yeah. some link there. I mean, that's me just doing no, no, my I pseudo. Think, I think that, you know, no, I think you're actually. I think that might be a big part of it. Actually, is the fact that games, and I think this ties into like trans as well. Is mm. like the the idea that games offer that role playing thing. Yeah, you know, you can like experiment. I know, like I say, I've got a friend. I talked to a friend, and they talk about like um, playing Bioware RPGs. And this is obviously a small fact for myself as well. Playing Bioware RPGs was a way of you to wrestle with your identity mm. because. 
it was exposure to you know queerness that you didn't get outside of like I it, mean, it was risk free. Mm. Yeah, you know that certainly the, the the kids that I um did an ethnography of it was just simply like message boards and chat rooms and yeah. bulletin boards at that time in the nineties, but they talked a lot about difference and a lot about their. They explored their identities, whether that be around gender or sexuality or anything else. And they felt comfortable to do that because they had the mask of the Internet and the virtual yeah. community mm. to protect them. So they weren't running the risk of being bullied. Or, I think, you know, games at, even have that other layer as well, because it's not even like you're playing as yourself. You're, you're It's an avatar. So there's exactly. there's a distance that allows mm. you to project and stuff without feeling like you're being vulnerable in that way. And I think in the early days, we used to say about the Internet that everyone's, you know, be, be really wary about the Internet. Everyone lies about who they are. It's like, no, that's so wrong. We're trying out different aspects and we always perform different aspects of our subjectivity depending on who we're talking to mm. or where we are. You know, I'm different to my, my sister than I am to you guys, you know. <laughs> yeah. Actually, not that different. You know, to be fair. <laughs> but I think that, I think it's, and again, this is where it gets really interesting to sort yeah. of dig into those yeah. things and yeah. I wish we had more time to. I just wanted to add um, something that came up during Interactive Futures in Leamington. Uh, you talk about workplaces where people don't feel comfortable maybe coming out or being themselves. Uh, Mediatonic is opening a studio in Leamington and they have Pride Night at the studio. So there are game studios. What, every that, week? Or? Uh, well, no, it's once a year, I think. <laughs> oh, one year. Once a year. Oh, every week. Come on. Um, before we talk about plans for the future, very quickly, uh, one thing that came up in the uh, long-term health conditions was that the games industry is notoriously depressed and anxious. Mm. Uh, so we have, uh, what percentage have we got here? Uh, anxiety and or depression, 31% yeah. in games versus 17% in the working age population. Mm -hmm. Anxiety, especially high in writing. Depression, especially high in QA so do we think again chicken and egg people with chronic health conditions anxiety depression are more likely to be drawn to work in the UK games industry or is it possible that in some instances the work is causing these health conditions well I, think, well, I mean we, <laughs> in the data we don't know yeah. right so that's the one thing you know this this census does not answer that question. Mm -hmm. We know that we can see uh, rates of anxiety and depression are higher in more junior roles mm -hmm. uh, and sort of you know, tail off as you get more senior. Uh, they, you know, that then reflects on that it's more likely younger people. We can also see, you know, like we said, we had a high rate of, uh, of non-straight people in, in the industry. And, you know, those people are, again, more likely to experience, uh, you know, yeah, uh, mental health conditions. So that's a factor. But we don't know what the causes are. So they could be it could be work related. Uh, it could be, you know, a precarity of your job role rather than the, the aspect of what you're doing. It could also be the fact that right now it's a politically volatile and fairly horrible time to, <laughs> to be a young person. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's not a great time in Britain at the moment. Uh, depending on who you are. So, you know, that is that a factor? We don't know. Yeah. So that's the thing. We need to do further work on this to and understand I think, that. And also, you know, that, and that to me is one of the most interesting stats as well as neurodiversity because we know there's also a link between neurodiversity and mental health mm. uh, and depression. And a lot of that uh, is also about just, you know, maybe, you know, maybe when you compare the mental health statistics uh, to the average kind of population, working age population, we know that we have a problem with talking about mental health and depression. And we all have mental health. Sometimes it's it's okay, sometimes it's not. And in society, you know, we've seen so many big campaigns uh, to get men talking, you know. We, we, so maybe, and, and again, this is us kind of, you know, theorizing. this is again, yeah. theorizing. Um, maybe 
it is linked to societal pressures of not talking about it. And we are a creative industries. We're all, we're all in the in industry of, of creativity, telling stories, creating characters, creating worlds, contexts. We're expressing ourselves. We're an art form. Maybe there's a maybe there's a link there. Mm -hmm. So if academics are out there uh, who'd like to explore this further, please. Um, but you with know, funding, again, with funding. <laughs> but again, that's why it's important with the pledge to understand. Okay, what measures? We know there's so many good examples in companies where they're doing mental health first aid, they're doing mental health awareness training with managers, they're bringing in experts every week so that you can just have drop-in clinics. So we're, you know, there's loads of good examples. But what else can companies do to just realize that actually we we this is at a high level? So how do yeah. we support people and show the rest of the yeah. world how to do it? Yeah, and I think also one Sorry. of the recommendations no, okay. we make in this report as well is that, you know, as well as doing a, a repeat of this census in two years to see how we've progressed, those initiatives that are trying to resolve some of these problems, we need to actively measure those as well, mm -hmm. independent mm -hmm. measurement of that. With the Digital Schoolhouse program, we have a third party that comes in and audits basically what we're doing and make sure it's sensible. Okay. And those initiatives, you know, if we're going to do some national campaign or we're going to do something, how... How are we measuring the success rate mm. of that? And uh, oh, because what we don't want is a situation where a lot of well-meaning people throw money at something. We try and do something, and it, it's not the right thing. And so we don't want to carry on doing that. Mm -hmm. We want to change sure. tactics. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Luke, Shay, and Sam, we will talk more uh, in a second. Sure. But we've got four minutes with Joe left. So if you just want to explain what the plan for the future is, then in four minutes, go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mentioned before that we also launched the industry pledge, and we had founding partners um, to help shape that it took about a year uh to shape the pledge um there this is was a hashtag raise the game hashtag raise the game and raise the game.com and raise the game.com is the yeah. website where you can sign up to the pledge and there are three simple things um that you pledge to do and there's no quotas there's no target meeting but you just have to do maybe if it's one thing that you're making a change in your workplace or whether that be in terms of how you recruit um, for uh, uh, employees, how you create a supportive workplace culture, but also how you you represent or be more representative and think about the games and the the, the messages that we're sending through our stories and characters on screen. And, and it's really about not reinventing the wheel. The idea of the pledge is that we want to get 200 games companies in the UK signed up by the end of 2021. Uh, which would be fantastic. Um, we've already got uh, these founding pledge partners, which is great. We've already committed to making a change. And we want to be able to offer that guidance. So it's a platform for sharing stories, best practice, what is working, what is not working, to point people in the direction of here's how to learn how to do this. You know, and, it, and, it, and again, it's like you can't do everything in one go as a company, mm. but you can make really small changes uh, that make a huge difference and then you're on a momentum mm. so that's part of the plan and then I think the next part is whoever wants to come and and, and dig deeper into the census uh, we want to you know we want to enable that um, it, it would be fantastic for University of Sheffield to be able to get more AHRC funding to repeat it in two years time um, and I think it's really just talking about it you know keep we have to keep talking about this mm. We've got so many good uh, collectives, good meetups, good initiatives. Let's share that uh, and let's see how it's making a difference. And, and, and having some tangible steps, you know, we're already thinking about 
right, what do we do with, you know, we're going to be launching, relaunching the Video Games Ambassador Scheme again, which is a school speaker scheme that hasn't really, it's kind of been a little bit dormant. Reinvigorate that, make sure that we're targeting schools in areas where there's kids who would never ever even think that this 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 industry is a career for them. And I think the mental health uh, support stuff is really important for us. Mm. So okay. that, that's kind of some of it, but literally we, <laughs> we, I think we need to give it a week or two just to yeah, sort of right. bed in a bit and settle and yeah. uh, so that our brains are clear as to, right, what's yeah, the way forward? I think that's right. I mean, th- there's so much in this report and in this work we've done that it's going to take some time for us all to digest it. Uh, and for, you know, the industry to kind of soak up and think about meaningful actions mm. from this. It, you mm. know, one of the reasons we didn't finish the report with, and here's a to-do list, mm. <laughs> is because that to-do list would have been as long as the rest of the report, mm. you know, because there are so many possible actions. So we, in the end, we've, we kind of finished with six principles to take forward rather than six, like, do this, do this, do this. And, and then they're all about, like, measuring yourself, measuring what we're doing, measuring the industry, uh, targeting uh, places where representation is clearly lower. Mm. Uh, also, uh, pushing this to a global stage. Mm. I think, you know, this is an industry-leading piece of research. Uh, it's probably also, you know, one of the be- uh, you know, very uh, positive thing for the creative industries in general. This shows that our, in- our industry is kind of leading th- the way on this. And we need to push that to also the wider indus- the creative industries, but also on the global stage. You know, let's do this in America. Let's do this in everywhere, right, uh, at this level. And then we'll have comparable data. And then we can really know a bit more about what, awesome. what's going on. So an ongoing conversation to have. Absolutely. But unfortunately, not with Jo, at least not now, because <laughs> she has to dash. Uh, so we'll have a quick break uh, and then we'll talk more afterwards. So one thing we ran out of time before we could ask to Joe, but hopefully you can answer, Luke, is uh, this pledge raised the game. So the supporters, you've got the big names like EA, Facebook, Jagex, King and Microsoft, who are the kind of main supporters. And then all these other companies that have signed up, Bastion, Mediatonic, Pock and Play, Bayman Games, Gaming Magazine with a Y, uh, Sumo Digital, BAFTA, Creative Assembly, all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. The studios themselves, will they have to publish their results of trying to follow this pledge? Yeah, uh, so it's not, uh, there's no measure that we're enforcing people to do when this mm. isn't a read this meet this quota do this you know reach this goal the idea is that this is a, a pledge to a, to try to fail and basically mm. what we're looking for from all of these companies is, is a thing to say this is what we tried to do we we started an initiative it, it was th- th- we found it to be this successful or not successful or that kind of stuff and there's a sort of self-reporting part in that sense to kind of let everyone else involved in the project know about how that's worked but there's no kind of like you have to have achieved X by X. So, the, mm. you know, they don't have to release their internal uh, diversity, you know, uh, surveys or anything like that. <laughs> it's very much about uh, what they've tried to do and whether it's really met the objective they wanted it to and what other people might learn from it. Okay. So just uh, promising to have a conversation about yeah, it I mean, we do. try. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they have to submit something to Yuki mm. through through this, this process. So there is a kind of formal part to it. But it's not in the sense that we will then come back and say, you've got 70% on this exam kind of thing. Yeah, and it's, it's, very, not, yeah. it's not public. So only Yuki will see that. Um, I think I'm not I'm not sure quite on exactly what gets declared publicly. Okay. Um, it's not something I've been deeply involved in on that part. But um, I think there will be a, a, a broader sharing of the things that are, are there. Uh, there's lots of like case studies on the site that people are writing. So that are going up now. So there's a few on there. I think uh, I can't remember who they're from. I think Creative Assembly have done one in the last couple 
couple of days, um, but sharing what where, where they're going with this. So there's kind of that public uh, engagement part of it. In terms of what exactly gets measured through UK, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. And the hope for you is that you'll be able to do this again in another two years. And do you think much will have changed in that time? In the census? Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know, right? I mean, so mm. hopefully, yeah. I mean, what we've got is a good measure of uh, of the industry now. And uh, th this is the point, right? You know, as we say in the sort of recommendations from at the end, you know, we have to do this measurement again, but also where each of these, you know, initiatives that different companies are trying or if there's a global initiative or whatever those things are, so raise the game, has it made a material difference, right? And we, we need to have assessment of that because mm. if we don't, it's, it, it's well-meaning people reinventing the wheel or throwing money at a problem that isn't solving it. You know, it, 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 everyone's best intentions are still there. But if it's not making that material difference, we need to do a different tactic. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Any follow-up thoughts on that? Just a follow-up thought. I think there's something really poignant, I suppose, in making sure that this is like a collaborative effort. Mm. Like I, mm. I was at the event last night and, you know, I really appreciated hammering home that point of, you know, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. There are loads of initiatives like doing stuff and we can all like kind of link up and work together yeah, yeah. and, you know, really make this tangible change because it's all well and good talking about it. And it, it doesn't have to be a tick box or anything like that yeah. and actually that's what we're hoping to avoid so yeah no yeah and i think you're right and also different things are going to work for different companies yeah. right mm -hmm. uh, the nature of averages is that some companies will be above average on some things and some will be below <laughs> right you know no if everyone was in the middle i mean yeah you're sure but like you know statistically it's not going to happen no. so what does an end game for diversity look like well, there isn't really one in that sense mm -hmm. because you can go okay we met the national average but london doesn't look like Dundee, mm. you know, so well, how does that work? Mm. Um, but so for each co company and for each situation, there's going to be things that work well for companies that look like this. So for EA, it's going to be one thing, but for a small startup of five people, it's a very different set of actions, you know. So, uh, and this is kind of bringing some of that out to, to you know, that this pledge is all about sharing that information for those businesses of different scales. Some things will be applicable to everyone. Some things will be quite specific, but it's, it's knowledge worth sharing. So in a second, I'm going to come to the two of you to kind of get like a summary of how you felt about these results and everything that came out of it. But before we do that, I want to talk about kind of the general response yeah. that we've seen on, on social media and through the media and stuff. What did you expect? And was the response from the media and on social media what you expected? Um, yeah. <laughs> you can look <laughs> candid. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's great that, um, it, you know, it went up on the BBC website. I think mm. we're in The Guardian as well. So in that sense, getting that kind of reach is good. The main BBC News Twitter account retweeted it. You know, in my world, you know, for me, I'm like, it's a bit of work I helped on and it's got, it's got you know, 33 million people or whatever <laughs> it is. I've just got eyeballs on it. Great. Yeah. Don't read the comments on that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously. Um, but it, it, in that sense, the reach is great. Um Different aspects of that have been picked out by different media outlets for something like, you know, the, the, the sort of mainstream, they're focusing on gender. I think, as Sam, you, we were talking about this earlier, but like, it's quite an easy topic for games in that sense. It doesn't involve understanding that much about the mm. games industry, whereas some of these other things, if we're going to get into, you know, working hours or we're going to get into mental health issues, those kind of stuff, it's something you need a bit more of a, a deeper understanding of the industry. Yeah, but so you've got a, a variety of news headlines. So the first few publications to publish articles about this, gamesindustry.biz mm -hmm. went with the UK games industry is still overwhelming young white and male 
That was Rebecca Valentine. Yeah. BBC News went with diversity in gaming industry promises to improve, which is a very positive yeah. uh, outlook on it. Uh, Eurogamer says report details how male dominated the UK games industry still is. That was Tom Phillips. Uh, PC Gamer Joe Parlock wrote Yuki Census reports that 31% of the UK games industry has depression or anxiety. And that it just, the spread seems to suggest that every writer took one thing that felt very personally important to them. Uh, I don't know if that's how you interpreted that. Yeah, I mean, I guess, we, you know, there's so much in this report that mm. that's going to happen, right? Mm. Those things, I, I think it's good that there is a spread of those things. It's not a one issue report. You know, mm. it's not just saying this is our one thing, we need to do it. There are lots of different aspects and so different people will have different takes and there are lots of different a actions that need to come out of this. Mm. So in a way, I think that's positive and I think that, you know, having you know it's an industry that is self-reporting all of this stuff we've done that work and are not trying to hide it mm. and sure there are problems in here there are also positive stories you know and so it's a bit of a mix but um i think that it's it, it's the nature of something of this level of detail that mm. people are going to take different things away from it what i find quite telling about that though is of those um like headlines none of them were about race and i just or mm. Which one? Uh, one of them mentioned uh, overwhelmingly young, white and male. Sure. But I mean, like in terms of like zeroing in on the fact mm -hmm. that this industry is only 10% BAME, like none of them were explicit in saying that. And I think that really speaks to the fact that not just like, you know, the games industry doesn't exist in a vacuum, you know, like obviously we're a trickle down of what happens in society. White people have this really just like are scared almost to talk about race. Like they feel so uncomfortable about it. And I think... I, what I really appreciate about the report is like getting into the intersectionality of it all because that's something you can't escape from. Like no matter what axis of oppression you're talking about, race does come into it every turn. And I think, yeah, hopefully with this report coming out, we're gonna have those conversations or at least I'm gonna lead the charge and make people feel really <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah, um, there were, I've got a few uh, tweets from uh, the black community mm. on here. So IO makes art just highlighted, just retweeted the Yuki thing and just put 2% black depressing <laughs> just putting it out there yeah. uh pock in play uh went had a had a big thread all about the the figures that relate to the bame community so uh 10 bame there's more women of color 14 percent than men of color or gender minorities of color which mm. is 12 percent um which is interesting uh there's two times the number of people of color in junior versus director roles um which is something we talked about earlier mm. um ella sillywood friend of the show, uh, is doing an interesting thing as a response to this. Uh, she says, something that stood out to me in the UK diversity census was the lack of people of color in senior roles. So as my attempt to help, I'm offering people of color in the games industry free public speaking and media training. Email me with your role and main concern and I'll take on three people a month, which is obviously awesome. Yeah, uh, but again, absolutely. the wider conversation about uh, people from marginalized backgrounds having to do the mm. diversity work is probably something we don't have time to get into here, but sure. yeah. something that's worth uh, bringing yeah, up. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you, you see, you know, 2% black people in the industry, yeah. then intersectionalities are harder to then draw from small numbers like that. Yeah. So we've had to summarize up BAME into one group sure. for statistical reasons, yeah, yeah. really, because there are so few respondents in certain groups that if you start to drill into the detail, people, individual people become identifiable within that. Mm. And obviously that's not something we want to, to, to happen. Sure, so, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that came up uh, quite a lot that wasn't really in many of the articles was about class. Uh, so Jess at Floofy Scorp tweeted, interesting and generally unsurprising results. Check those class signifiers, though. Um, and uh, Game Workers Unite UK uh, talked about this as well and talked about the, the, the working hours, the staggering dispar disparity in class backgrounds among game workers and the numbers experiencing mental health problems. 
Uh, Lewis Denby at Game If You Are tweeted, most people are under 35, only 28% are women, 31% have anxiety and or depression, 25% regularly work more than full-time hours, which is something we haven't mentioned yet. So 25% reported working more than 40 hours a week. Mm. Uh, and then he said, can we stop pretending uh, no, the game's... No, that's not quite right. It's 20, uh, 25%... Well, the, so the, some of those reported less, and some reported more. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. if we if we look, I, look, I think it's what page is this on? It's a good do, question. Do, do. This report is when very is, long. It's on. Yeah, it's sixteen. Page sixteen. I don't have anything to flick through, so I'm going <laughs> to do shadow puppets. Yeah. Uh, so seventeen percent. Uh, Work forty-one to fifty hours, three percent fifty-one to sixty, and zero point five. So it's just over twenty. Oh yeah, so twenty percent. So, yeah. so we got a few that for, uh, work less than thirty hours. So there's a lot in in working hours, and obviously everyone's going to think about crunch in in that. This is not really an assessment for crunch, and I think it's clear we make this point quite clearly on this page. Uh, you know, we understand that that obviously is an issue that is uh, uh, there's a huge mm. discussion about. Uh, it's also one that's largely dread for, dread, um, led from the American industry. They have different working uh, laws over there. Uh, is it the same in the UK? We don't know. We haven't, this is not that research. Sure. This does identify, though, that there is more work needs to be done to understand this. Mm. This question says, how many hours per week do you usually work? Mm. Right? Not how many hours have you worked at the most and how often does that happen and does it happen at the end of projects and how does that vary? This doesn't do that. And I think it's an important area we need to do more research on to understand whether what the, what the real scenario is in the UK. Yeah, because, I mean, so that suggests then that 20% of people, which is a fifth, usually work more than 40 hours. So that's something that, I guess, yeah, needs further study. Yeah, mm. I definitely think so, yeah. Okay. And uh, classes, classes, the the one though, like as as well as race, is the one that is was omitted, and usually is as well, which mm. always bothers me. Um, like like the job I, ha I mean, when I first had one foot in the games industry, I was still a toilet cleaner, and um, I didn't. I think from the outside, I didn't realize how middle class and well off a lot of the games industry and games media is. I had no perception of that from the outside. It wasn't yeah. until I entered it and. I mean, before I got into games, I'd never met anyone who'd gone to, like, private school or came from, like, you know, really well up and never met anyone like that. So that was quite a... Yeah, quite... And especially when I started to notice how frequently that came up, it mm. was like, whoa, like... And that's not really transparent from the outside yeah. at all, I don't think. Should we go through some of the figures? Yeah. So uh, the percentage from house who came from households in which the main income earner was from a managerial or professional background... Uh, 61% in the games industry, which uh, c for comparison to other industries, 73% of doctors, which I guess you would expect. Mm. Uh, film, TV or radio, 55%. So lower. Scientists even, 54%. Yeah. IT, 45%. I think, um, I, I mean, I think it's worth, I think one thing that's worth talking about in that, because I think this is often when it's brought up is often glossed over or brushed off in games. Games is an expensive hobby. Mm. Like owning a games console and buying games is expensive and i think that is a, you know and that's a barrier that's hard to get around in a lot of you know practical ways but it, it but it nonetheless i think does dictate who is able to engage with games and who has access to the tools to be able to create games and learn those skills you know 
Yeah, so Alicia Judge, uh, another friend of the show, tweeted loads of really meaty facts to get your teeth into here in this thorough research on the UK games industry. So that's a kind words for you. Uh, one I found interesting, 81% of the industry has undergraduate degrees for most other creative industries. That figure is just 57%. And then she continues, that stat surely links to the finding that 62% of gaming professionals come from middle class households. Gaming is expensive and so is university. How many people from different backgrounds would get into gaming if they had more financial support? Um, and then uh, Danny Soulfield wadeson Mad Quills, who's tweeted into us before, uh, asked a direct question for us to think about. Do you think the class issue and data combined, I guess, with the majority of all jobs apparently being managerial slash professional is to do with hiring bias or access to or treatment within education? So is it the industry's fault or does it go much deeper and how can we fix it? I do. Sorry. I do have one thing on, on, on that particular thing, uh -huh. because one thing that um, came up to me is because in Scotland, we have the great privilege of free education, free higher education, a university and college. And I am aware that we always joke about the Scottish games mafia and there is always there is a there is like a lot of prolific Scottish people in games. Like I mean Rockstar exists and stuff, but like generally there's quite even within games media and I suspect that part of that is to do with the fact that we have access to higher education. So I think I th I mean that's kind of anecdotal, but I think you can definitely draw some conclusions about like that access to that definitely helps and is perceived to make you more desirable within the industry. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that, that, you know, if you look at the the percentage of people who with higher education in the games industry, with undergraduate degrees, it's 81% in the general workforce, but in sort of core games production roles mm -hmm. like art and programming, that's like 88%, which is above architecture. You know, so people <laughs> yeah. in games are generally as qualified as architects, you know, which is obviously a fairly you know, traditionally elitist kind of job. Mm. So, but in order to, to, to get that level of education, you, you there's a sort of, you know, you have to have the sort of background that you come from. That is a, there's a path to those things. If you come from a, an underprivileged area, wherever that is, you know, or you come from, you know, down in the, the, the bottom end of Cornwall or something, you know, there's less of a route that's clearly in front of you. Mm. So it's naturally going to, uh, there's going to be correlation between those two things. How much that affects it and how much is based on hiring practice or other prejudices i mean we don't know so that's again more research area and i guess that's kind of going to be some of my answers to some of this <laughs> this doesn't tell us that but it does allow us to ask these questions you know and it gives us a real set of, uh, of real numbers to go well this is appears to be the case so where do we go with this mm. Um, so we've made a lot of comparisons between games and other fields. So you talk about architecture there. Yeah, but yeah. also like there's a lot of do we compare it to other creative industries or do we compare it to highly skilled things like IT? And how do you decide what the best comparison is? What is games most like? Um, well, the thing is about games is it's kind of a lot of different skills, right? We, you know, Joe, Joe mentioned earlier, you kind of need polymaths. Well, I mean, you certainly need people who understand the different aspects. There's technical work, you know, there's coding, there's uh, IT infrastructure stuff, there's art roles, there's business development, there's marketing, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. So um, in that sense, we're not that similar to any one other industry. We mm -hmm. take aspects of those. So in, in this analysis, we made some comparisons to the creative industries, which we sit as a part of. Uh, there is also good data out about those industries, so we can do that relatively easily. If things like if you look at, you know, we're here in Shoreditch and the, you know, you've got Silicon Roundabout or whatever it's called uh, <laughs> down the road. And, uh, you know, the, but there isn't really great data about, uh, you know, the tech industry in that sense, mm. you know. So it, we can't, it's harder for us to make those comparisons. We're looking at the sort of broader IT industries. Um, you know, we've made those comparisons there because there is that data. So it's kind of a factor of where we could get sensible things. I mean, you know, 
it, would it be sensible for us to go and compare ourselves to you know the, the city uh, or finance you know the financial uh, d- district or, or you know to go and look at the crafts industry I mean we make that comparison I think in some of this because it's part of the creative industries but we're not going to be much like those industries or we're going to look at I don't know the oil and gas industry the, so the, the sensible industries that we want to make that comparison to and hopefully we've tried to do that where we had the data mm. Uh, I've got one more question for you, Luke, and then we'll move on to Sam and Shay's kind of final thoughts. Yeah, sure. uh, so this is something that Maggie actually brought up with me when she after she read this. Uh, so most of the respondents were full-time employees. Is it possible that we're missing a larger, uh, even maybe larger marginalized workforce in you know contract positions and freelance? Yeah, I think it's possibly. And so we make that point about the freelancers specifically in the report. Mm. Um, so we, I think we had a 4% respondents from uh, who, who said they were freelancers. And what, I was very cautious about that number because I don't want to say the game's workforce is 4% freelancers. Mm-hmm. You know, are, do all freelancers follow the, 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 the ways we uh, got that message out that there was a census was available? Maybe not. We don't know. So we targeted companies. They probably pushed it out to their workforce. Does that include the freelancers? I don't know. Uh, in all, you know, some will, some won't. Who knows? Uh, also, you know, are all freelancers following the, twi- the UK Twitter accounts and so on? So um, we got some answers from freelancers, but not. I wouldn't want to say that is the number of freelancers in our sector. Um, if you were going to do that, that would be again a diff- you'd probably target that slightly differently. Mm. But yeah, they're a hard, they're a hard crowd to reach by <laughs> the nature of. And it's another thing, you know, very small businesses. We didn't get as high a response from them because there's lots of them. So mm. you need to get the message out to lots of individual people. So you know, that's maybe next time. Yeah, absolutely. So when we come back to doing this in two years and and, and ten thousand people respond, I'll have a better <laughs> answer for you. Yeah. All right. Okay. Shay, Sam, now's your opportunity to express how this whole thing made you feel. Uh, So I guess on the point of um, like comparing it to other creative industries, I think my initial when reading through the report, seeing the comparison made at every turn, like my immediate thought was like, no, 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 like we don't want to compare it to them because I think my worry was that we compare it and be like oh actually we're 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 not so bad games Mm. because obviously we've we've been quite critical of ourselves up until this point so I didn't want to like let ourselves off the hook but actually it hasn't been that which Mm. I really like there is there has been um quite a lot of accountability on you know what you know how bad things are and like what we can do in terms of next steps and I think yeah, my mind was like completely changed especially going to the event last night um I come into everything um negatively i suppose because that's hey, who i am we, every, we need a skeptic <laughs> it's healthy um but yeah no i was like really pleasantly surprised at yeah the level of accountability and i think well from some people um <laughs> i think from others i think there is a lot of back patting and i i think in the coming weeks and months and years like i, I really want to get into this this mindset that it's not just on the marginalized people to kind of lead the front because you know, I, I can't remember who said it. But it was like, imagine like how much work marginalized people would get done if we didn't have to then worry mm. about changing the working conditions mm. for ourselves, you know? Um, so I, I do want it. I do want people to kind of get it in their heads that like you're an ally to whatever cause and, you know, you should get involved at every single turn, you know? And I'm hoping that that's what the fallout is from the fallout. That sounds negative. But I think that I hope that's what the next steps are for a lot of people reading the report. They feel inspired as opposed to feeling defeated or deflated. I think I think that that final point. Um, I think my experience being in games is repeatedly that yeah, marginalized people are the ones doing all the work to fix the problems, mm-hmm. which is frustrating because they're the people in the worst position to do that. And I think I hope that people um, 
would you know with privilege across the whole spectrum of that you know like you know i have privilege that i have to implement to help people that have less than me you know i think that goes all the way to the most privileged um i think what i would hope to say is people really really take this on board and see that they need to be involved in a lot more stuff you know in terms of helping marginalized people come into the industry and helping them stay in the industry and it's not just yeah, like I don't know. Like I'm constantly as a you know when I was freelancing games, it, the pressure was constantly on like marginalized people to write about marginalized issues, and it's mm -hmm. like that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, everyone should be learning and taking on that. From you know, I you know learn from people that are you know more marginalized and less privileged than I do, so that I can internalize that and act on that and help them. You know, and I I want to see more of that of people you know, just taking that on board and do working on behalf of other people and not just assuming that giving them the opportunity to air, giving them a platform is enough. It's like, no, 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 stop. You know, you don't, can't just give them opportunities to do the work. You need to start doing the work as well. And I hope that, you know, all these numbers give them something really tangible to start working on with regards to that. Yeah. So I guess that's a call to action for everyone watching. Uh, help people who are more marginalized than you are. Um, something that came up at Interactive Futures in Leamington was this unconscious bias study that Harvard University put out. Uh, people should take that, especially if you work in a studio, especially if you have people who work for you. Um, it's an important thing to be aware of your own unconscious biases. Uh, if you have thoughts on the UK games industry census or anything we've discussed today, you can send those in, post them on glasshouse.games, email community at glasshouse.games or tweet at GHG show. Uh, now's the point where we read out some of the letters we've received. Have you got anything else you wanted to say before we move on to that? No, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I, this is great information to have out in the world. Anyone's got any questions, they can also contact me mm -hmm. directly. So I'm luke at yuki.org.uk or at yuki luke. Um, so yeah, feel free to ping me with anything you think, anything you want to know out of this and we'll do the best we can to, to dig into that information, help you. We are going to do further work on this. So the, the work on this data isn't done. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Mark Taylor is well worthy of a shout out. He's done some fantastic work on this. Uh, and we, he and I continue, uh, will continue to work on this. Uh, fund, funding, uh, if that's, if that's that. <laughs> um, funding and time uh, allowing. But the intention is there is lots more data to get into in this. There's lots of, you know, uh, other, other parts to dig through and we want to do that. Mm. And, uh, you know, this is the start, not, not the end. Awesome. I'm sure we'll continue to talk about it. Yuki Luke is such a good catchy Twitter handle, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it, was, it was convenient, yeah. So it, worked, it worked quite well. All right, so I've got a few uh, comments and, and uh, emails from listeners to, to read out. Uh, so on our Pokemon Sword and Shield uh, reflections, which feels like a while ago now, uh, at, uh, I can't, Lilili, UIVR, uh, thoroughly enjoyed this episode. And then three points numbered. Number one, <laughs> live national dexes are nothing to be embarrassed about. I also have one. That is a reference to Alex Peffley, our dear director, who has a complete living Pokedex. Right. From all I games. would like to take this point that I did not make fun of Alex in that video. No. I was very reserved. I, I made fun of him out after the recording, <laughs> out in the bar. I think I would love about Pokemon is you know I, I, a guy in my late thirties and I'm sitting there with my DS on the on the tube and it's like get to that mini game where it's like you've got to dress up your Pokemon and put like bows on it <laughs> and I'm like sitting there going. Just doing this. It's okay. It's like, you know, you're reading American Psycho and you get to the weird bits and that and you're sitting on the tube and going, oh my God, I can see this. Oh God, like, I similarly with Pokemon, but in a very different context. I had that with a copy of The Wicked and the Divine. Have you, have you read that? Yes. And I just so, opened it at like an orgy. It was like uh, on the train, like maybe later. Yes. Great comment. I need to finish that. Actually. That's a good brainer. Uh, that's, uh, thanks, Kieran, for that. Um, oh, so number two, camping and curry are both awesome. Don't know if this means in the game or in real life. Both? But... 
I mean, I've at least had both as an answer. Not in real life. The air's Can too fresh. Who wants to sleep What is it? You, you say gross. urchin like, oh, the fresh air. Ugh. Gross. Number three. Please don't disrespect the apple dragon. Oh, that was me. <laughs> That's directly to me. That thing is weird and I stand by that. I loved it. Uh, they continue. He turns into apple dragon pie, which is hands down the best of the new Pokemon. So, I mean, I can't. No, nah, yeah. I, I, I'm still making the case that little Centurion like Pokemon, the oh. I can't remember what it's called, the, the Phalanx, Phalanx, yeah, something. Yeah. That's my, that's the best new one. That's just such a creative design. Uh, at Machine Mahine, yeah, you read out my question. Interesting to see what Pokemon people like or not. Hashtag Justice for Appleton. <laughs> <laughs> You've riled up. People are angry. Was that up hashtag Justice? Hashtag yeah. Justice. You're getting. For you're gonna get cancelled off the back of this. <laughs> Dream. It's finally <laughs> happening. Yes. Um, Kevin Moran on YouTube. Wow, never knew Pokemon was the highest grossing media franchise. Did you know this? We read uh, this off Wikipedia. <laughs> no. So, yeah, yeah, apparently, what did, what did Alex say? More than more Marvel? Everything, more like than, Star yeah. Wars, Disney, yeah. everything. Pokemon is the biggest intellectual yeah. property in terms right, of like, okay. money. I mean, I know GTA uh, 5 is obviously the biggest grossing entertainment product of all time mm. uh, itself. As a singular uh, yeah, thing. Yeah, singular yeah. thing. But I don't know, yeah. But, I, mean, I, I will defer to the knowledge of Wikipedia. Well, so, Pokemon yeah. Go was making like a billion a year or yeah. something, wasn't it? So <laughs> it had sixty. So the thing I liked about Pokemon Go, uh, there was a stat at one point where it had sixty million monthly active users, which was about the same as Steam, mm. you know, at the time. And you're yeah. like, right, also the okay. population of the pain. UK. Oh, well, get it on for you. Know, <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah. Goodness. I'm so glad you're here with the stats. You're like this, sir. So Kevin Moran continues. That is a fascinating Wikipedia article. For example, an estimated 67% of Pokemon's revenue is merchandise. Mm. Video games account for only 17%. I mean, that makes sense to me. But if that yeah. includes Pokemon Go, that's a huge... I mean, even if it does, I mean, yeah, I just think of... Like, remember the, the Poké store that opened up in Stratford? Oh, yeah. What Stratford was it? Mm, the other one uh, in White City. White City? Because yeah. people were... Because I, I didn't I didn't go because I don't give a fuck. It just got smashed uh, to pieces, didn't it? Immediately, everyone just... It was empty yeah. within minutes. Huge queues. Huge. You're only allowed to buy one thing. It doesn't surprise me that, though. Hold on, uh, you, were, you, were, you, were only allowed to, you were only allowed to buy one thing? I think so. Oh, there was like I a cap anyway. on it? Wow. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. So every year, Yuki does this evaluation of the, how much people in the UK spend on games. And we look at broader games culture. So we look at merchandising. We look at books and magazines. And basically, for most of those categories, it's Minecraft, Fortnite, mm -hmm. and Pokemon, mm -hmm. that, the book. Those. You want to write. What's, what's Fortnite merchandise look like? Figures, books, all kinds. And you get I, those kind of, seen I guess what they're now called bookazines, which are those things you get in airports, which is like, you know, I know. Right, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm, I was equally horrified to do this. Bookazines. It was a category. It came up as a category, and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm not happy about that. But anyway, uh, okay. but like, you know, it's stuff you, you buy for your kids when you're not traveling, all that kind of stuff. There's loads, loads of that stuff. It sells. Quite a lot. Wow. So, yeah. but yeah, it's those three at the moment. That, and they uh, still can't that. pay the, the, you know, the dancers and artists that they're ripping off for their emojis. <laughs> yeah. hey, uh, I imagine we'll see a bit more Witcher though this year. I'm oh yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, just me buying. I don't. I mean, I don't buy a lot of merchandise, but I do have two statues <laughs> of Geralt. So yeah, the, you know, I'm part of the problem. Uh, Kevin just continues in a world where Disney, Marvel and Star Wars seem all consuming right now it was quite nice to learn that they're not as lucrative as Winnie the Pooh Hello Kitty and Pokemon capitalism is bad though yes <laughs> yes brought it back uh, we've had a few comments about the bar so Roz at yeah. Tulip the Great uh, extremely big treat to visit the GHG show studio so impressed with everything the team are doing and the adjoining cafe whisks up a superlative iced latte so it really is a flawless operation from head to toe we love 
Uh, Ollie Smith said, hoping to pop down myself when I'm next in London. And Beard Burrito, very good Twitter <laughs> Very handle. good. Uh, Notion seconded. It looks like a gosh darn lovely space. Shout out to our chocolate people because um, I tweeted out a picture and people were asking about the croissants. But I was like, the real killer item out there is the chocolate Danish swirls. Yeah. They are unbelievably decadent so and gorgeous. I have yeah. one like every day. Yeah. So speaking of which, uh, Luke, we always follow up our food for thought with actual food. Okay. Uh, so today Shay has brought da, 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 da. donuts from Crosstown. So I'm aware that that was a snack I brought last time, but they were doing like limited edition stuff. Um, I'll let you do the unveiling. So, oh, uh, I'm not very graceful. Right, well, so. da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah, you probably don't. Luke, that. you a drummer? Uh, I've I made a judgment of Can you? <gasps> oh, look at that! Wow, they look whoa! Fancy. Heavens, I'm scared. And this is this is this is Kit's special one. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> so none of us touch that. Yeah, no I've got a special one for Kit, which is nice. Because would you, Kit would you like some like? Uh, maybe after we after we go. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Luke doesn't want to eat on camera. No, no one needs to see a man approaching 40 with chocolate all over his face. Uh, what people who are watching the show probably don't realize is that immediately after turning the cameras off, Kit always comes in front to grab a snack. So, yeah. Would you like some, Jerry? Uh, I'm okay. I don't actually like donuts very oh, much. Oh, my goodness. Is, yeah. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I did not realize that. There are so many as well, and they're huge. Not everyone likes everything. Yeah. I'm sure they would get eaten. There we go. Yeah. Splendid. Do you want some? Yeah, I'm more I'm of actually a... good. I had a donut beforehand. It's just going <laughs> to be you. So sorry, Sam. Why didn't I even split this? <laughs> I'm more of a, like, um, I spent a lot of my childhood going to, like, car boot sales, you know, like, getting mm -hmm. up at, like, five o'clock in the morning yeah. to go to a car boot fair, and they always had the hot... Like ring donuts. Oh, I, mean, sure. I like those. And the might jam donuts that you get from Tesco. you get on a pier, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, I had one in Brighton once and a bird just came down and ate the whole thing out of my hand. I got attacked by seagulls once in um, in Cornwall. But, but my first Cornish, Cornish oh, pasty. No. Walked out, seagull attack. About 40 oh. of them. It was... Quite and all the locals are like, yeah. you chump. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> this is the first chocolate I've had in like two weeks, so it's gorgeous. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so for people who maybe are just listening and couldn't see that, we have, I mean, we don't need to describe. We've got a box of Crosstown Donuts. They're, they're very shiny. I should point out, though, the thing that's interesting, some of these are very green. We've got a matcha one that is like a lovely green. Mm. So oh, the other that's, ones? That's the, that's the novelty. Yeah, nice the other one's Pandan, which is a Chinese... I want to try one because they're, they're like, this, they're like yeah. luminous green and like coconut on it. It yeah. looks interesting. It's really nice. Well, Sam will uh, demolish those yeah. maybe afterwards. <laughs> uh, so is, has anyone got anything they want to share for the weekend? Is there anything you're working on that you're apart from continually asking people to give you money to do more research? I was mainly looking forward to not working on this oh, anymore. Sure, sure, so sure. this is kind of done and I'm only going to spend the rest of the day just looking at Twitter and going, oh my God, I don't have to do this report anymore. So uh, <laughs> that's going to be my main outlook for the rest of the week. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of, you know, we're doing some media stuff around all of this and also, you know, just continuing to pro promote it, pushing it out. We've got, you know, conversations that we're having all the time as Yuki with government, other 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 creative sectors, all kinds of stuff, working on the pledge, on the on the report and making sure that we make the, the, the best out of it, I think. So that's, oh. that's our job for the week um, ahead. I want a show I want to have for this week because we touched on the Witcher stuff is... Um, the Witcher last like fan art thing where people doing their own original like Lady Witchers is just for whatever reason has taken off recently. I just want everyone to to do those and at me because I want to see more of these. I want my entire timeline to just be this. That's Have all I care about. Got right a now. hashtag? They do. There's hashtag Witcher last. There's hashtag Witcher OC, and then some people are just using the Witcher hashtag. But Witcher last would be is the one I follow. Yes, uh, awesome. It's very exciting. Shay, I don't have anything. Just have a good week, I guess. <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, and uh, if you're watching this or listening to this on the day it came out, it is my birthday. 
uh, Happy on the birthday February. from the future. I will be 30, believe it or not. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. Yeah, no, I've heard good things yeah. about people. Like all of my friends who are in their 30s or beyond say it was the best decade. So I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be good. Uh, so if we've made you hungry, uh, you can purchase special limited donuts like this at Crosstown just down the road from us. So you should do that and pop into the bar and say hi to us as well. Um, if you have any suggestions for food we should try or things we should talk about, head over to glasshouse.games and leave us a comment. Email us at community at glasshouse.games or tweet us at GHD show. You can watch more of our shows uh, on YouTube or at glasshouse.games. Thank you to Shay. You're welcome. Sam. Thanks for having me. And our special guests, Dr. Joe Twist, who can't thank us because she's no longer here, and Luke Hebblethwaite. Thank you. Uh, for joining me this week. Thanks also, as always, to the wonderful, the superlative, stealing that word from that tweet earlier, mm -hmm. the incredible Kit Cheers. for making the show happen every week, uh, and to Dan Seaparks for the music. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon.